you have your Bible, if you'll turn to Mark chapter 7. If you're visiting with us, just note we'll have some folks come forward. We have plenty of extra Bibles, and we would love to give you one. So feel free to follow along in our study as we're going through the Gospel of Mark. Did you ever notice how often we use the heart in our culture? We'll say things like, what's on your heart? Today I have a heavy heart. Whoa, that dude's cold-hearted. We'll listen to pop songs like, listen to your heart, follow your heart. My achy, breaky heart. (laughs) You get it. The heart in the Bible is really the seat of who we are. It's it's what really defines us. It's it's how we think. It's how we feel. It's 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 what we desire. And so Jesus was very fond of addressing the matters of the heart, because so often when it comes to religion, we get preoccupied with the externals, when in fact Jesus is very concerned with the internals, our heart. And so this morning in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see a passage where Jesus is addressing the matters of the heart. Now, the means by which he's doing it, I want to give you a little background, is, is that, think about this, all over the world, six, seven billion people now, right? Everyone in most cultures has some expression of religion, right? Even in the most primitive culture, they're trying somehow, they recognize there must be some being out there, and, and they, they come up with their own way to try to, to please him. The Bible tells us in Romans 1 that that mankind, because of the condition of our heart, rejects the truth about God and speculates about how to please him. So one would think it would be as simple as this. God would give us a book, a manual, to learn how to please him. End of discussion. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with the Bible, you know, God didn't drop the Bible out of heaven, but Christians believe that God inspired holy men to write these very words, and that this book is indeed the plan of God for how to please him. So one would think if you're looking at the Jews of the Old Testament that this would have been an easy matter. They've got the Bible now. Any further questions? But what had happened among the Jews during the time of Jesus, and it took a long time to lead up to this, is that sometimes people with good intentions twist and distort the Bible in such a way that they miss the whole message. So what we learn from history is that the Jews during the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament times had developed a second book, not the Bible, but it was called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was an attempt at interpreting the Bible and coming up with the specifics of how to apply it. So, for example, if God gave a commandment like this, you shall not work on the Sabbath. There was a a law that said don't plow on the Sabbath. So, obviously, the spirit of that was a farmer should not work on Sunday. But the Mishnah, as the rabbis sat around discussing the law, they began to sort of put a fence around it and add things like, well, then that means you can't, drag a chair across a dirt floor because that's plowing and all of a sudden you start going wait a minute that seems kind of like that's not the spirit of the law well one of the things that jews became really obsessed with is the idea of purity 
So there was a concept in the Old Testament that in order to come before God, you needed to be pure. But some of the ways in the Old Testament in which they went through ceremonies, the ceremonies themselves did not make you pure. But a high priest, for example, before he went into his ministry would have to take a special bath. So there were certain rituals in the Old Testament about how to have a ceremonial cleansing. Well, the Jews became obsessed with this, and the Mishnah, at least 25 to 30% of it, was, was about all these details that they came up with about how to stay ceremonial pure. If you go to the marketplace and you're around Gentiles, you have to come home and, and you have to have this special bath. If you're going to eat, you have to wash your hands. But it wasn't tip for hygiene, it was for purity. And so they became obsessed with this. And now here's the danger. These traditions that weren't in the Bible now became authoritative. And, and we see this all the time where churches have these things. Well, you can't do this and you don't do that. And this is what we believe. And you go, but wait a minute, that's not in the Bible. Well, Jesus comes head to head with that when he begins to, to basically say, I'm not doing those traditions. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so the leadership in Jesus' day, the Pharisees confronted him about this. So let's look in Mark chapter 7. It says, The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem. And they had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. They weren't concerned about germs here, okay? So this had nothing to do with, oh, you better, better not get sick. Wait a minute, you can't eat because you're not right with God if you didn't go through all the ceremonies. And, and it was elaborate. One of the Greek words here is their fists, that somehow you had to have your fists a certain way when you did these ceremonies. So Mark, writing to non-Jews, right? Jews would have known this, but Mark adds this to explain it. Verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews, they don't eat unless they carefully wash their hands. Thus, now here's the key, observing the traditions of the elders. And it's crazy because so many times people do things religiously and they don't even know why they do them. Why do we do Lent? You know, why, why do we do this? Why do I go to confession? Why do I say these prayers? And sometimes they never think about, wait a minute, where is that in the Bible? And so when they saw someone not doing it, they're like, hey man, you're not doing the rules. Mark says, when they go to the marketplace, they don't eat unless they cleanse themselves and many other things that they had received in order to observe. So they confront Jesus in verse 5. They have to do a little intervention. The Pharisees and the scribes asked them, hey man, why do your disciples, they don't walk according to the tradition of the elders? They eat their bread with unpure. You guys aren't doing the rules. Now, Jesus is, is a really interesting being in that he's very loving, but sometimes he can be very direct. The Bible says he speaks the truth and he defers to no man. So in this case, one would say he wasn't perhaps as tactful as we would have thought he would be, but he was very direct. They're like, why aren't you doing this? And he goes, good question, you hypocrites. Wait, what? Look at this, verse 6. He said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. And they're like, wait, 
The prophet Isaiah spoke about us? He, he, he goes, yeah, he did. Isaiah was right when he talked about you. Which verse are you talking about? The one that talks about you hypocrites. What? And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Think about that. That would have blown people away. Wait, the Pharisees are the most religious people around. All day long they pray, they walk around doing crazy stuff. What do you mean? And he goes, yeah, their heart is, their, the heart, their heart's far from me. But they're religious. In fact, look at the next verse. He goes, in vain they worship me. That idea is that it was useless. It was a waste of time. How would you like Jesus to appear in your car on the way home today and go, well, that was a big waste of time. And it wasn't because of what others were doing. It was your heart. You wasted your time because you worshiped me in vain. Well, what does that look like? Well, in this case, he says, a large reason for that is because you teach as doctrines the precepts of man. In other words, you're no longer preoccupied with what this book teaches, but what your traditions are. And we have to be careful about that. You'll hear people say, you can't, you can't dance, you know. Christians don't dance. You go, wait a minute. Remind me where that is in the Bible. So Jesus is going to sort of analyze this. He goes, this is a deep problem here. He says to them, now look at verse 9. You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So it wasn't just like they were adding rules to the Bible. They not only were adding rules to the Bible, they were figuring out how to get around the clear rules of the Bible, right? So there were some pretty clear, God didn't stutter when he gave Ten Commandments. You shall not lie. You shall not steal, right? And we all have an amazing ability to rationalize. Well, you know, it wasn't actually a lie, but I kind of like, so Jesus goes, well, let me give you an example. Let's take that one commandment, honor your father and mother. Now, by the way, a lot of Christians probably aren't aware of this, but one of the primary meanings of honor your father and mother is not to go, oh, yes, mother, yes, father. It's not to, oh, I always call my dad on Father's Day, and I'd be sure to send him a card. One of the primary meanings of honor your father and mother is to take care of them, to support them emotionally, and particularly financially. That's new to a lot of people, but in, in the Christian faith, the Bible says, if you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. So, but all of us recognize that to take care of your parents financially can be a cost to it. Like, wait, their health care, their, you know, they, they may have financial needs. So Jesus goes, man, you guys are so clever. He says, you're good at this. You nicely set aside. In fact, sometimes they say you're experts at getting around the Bible. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. By the way, a lot of people don't know that Moses said, did you ever really say something horrible about your parents? A lot of people don't know that Moses also said this. He who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. Imagine if we still practice that. I'd be like, boy, attendance is down. <laughs> Problem is, they'd be like, where's Pastor Tom? He's dead. 
But Jesus says, but look what you've done. Verse 11, you say, if a man says to his father and mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by is Corbin, that is given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Thus you invalidate the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. This was clever. And you talk about clever. So here's what they did. Have you ever heard of deferred giving? Deferred giving is, is something that lots of Christians do. If you want to give some money to a Christian institution or organization, a church, or I teach at Cairn University, right? People sometimes will say, I would like to give my estate to uh, a, a Christian church or university. It's not uncommon. People do it all the time. But when it's deferred, it simply means you don't get it until the person dies and then it's handed over in their will. And, and you don't have to defer your, your whole estate, but some people will defer a certain amount of money. So the Pharisees came up with a great idea. We'll defer all of our possessions to give them to the, to the synagogue. I'm giving all my stuff to the church. So they signed this binding will that said, all of my possessions are given over to God. When I die, sell my chariot, sell my house, give all the money to the synagogue. Now, at first you go, well, that's pretty cool, right? Wish more Christians were generous, you know, particularly in Christian education. Christian education is difficult to support, right? But Jesus is like, no, no I see behind what you're doing. He says, by doing that, a man will then say to his father and mother, you know, I, I wish I could help you, Dad, because I have a, an awesome Lexus chariot here, and, and I see that you can't even afford medical care. Or, Mom, I'm really, it hurts to see that you're going to be put out of your place because you can't pay, or I know you don't have a lot of food, and I would love to help, but problem is I've given all my stuff to God. Now, I still have my Lexus chariot. I still have my three-story house. I still have my villa, but I can't give any of it to you because it's already been deferred. I gave it to God. Jesus goes, you hypocrites. Do you see what you just did? You haven't made any sacrifices for your parents, and somehow you think you're pleasing to God. And the Pharisees, hey, they weren't stupid. They were like, hey, once you sign it, you're binded. So they actually added a law that says, if you change your mind, if some dope came to his senses and going, that was stupid, I can't pay for my dad's health care, I'm changing the Corbin. They had a rule, you had to pay 50 shekels of silver, that's a lot of money, to unbind the Corbin vow. You go, wow, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty nasty, right? And you might say, well, all right, well, come on. We all might have a little blind spot. But Jesus just says, hey, listen, this isn't a blind spot. Look at verse 13. He says, you invalidate the word of God by your traditions which you've handed down. And by the way, you do many such things as that. You do this all the time. You get around obeying God's clear word by some clever way of saying, well, my case is different. And Christians do this all the time. I know the Bible says we should give, but in my case, you have to understand, you know, I can't afford to, you know. So, Jesus goes, let's talk about the real issue here. The real issue is the heart. 
Look at verse 14. Summoning the multitude again, he said to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. So notice, he's having this debate with the religious leaders, and they're like, you're not doing the rules. And he goes, the rules, these aren't God's rules. These are your rules, you hypocrites. And by the way, you have many things like that. And, and sadly, there's a lot of people who are like, well, we, we follow the traditions of our church. And you're like, but that, that's not in the Bible. Yeah, but, but, but if I were to stop doing that, my grandmom would be so upset. I mean, for years we've been doing it this way. So Jesus says, here's what the problem is. So he calls everybody, listen up. And then he makes a parabolic statement. He, he, he throws out one of those zingers, which again, the disciples are like, what? He says, there's nothing outside of a man which going into him can defile him. It's what proceeds out of man. That's what defiles him. And thanks, Jesus. But they didn't get it. So look at, look at verse 17. Leaving the multitude, he entered the house and his disciples questioned him about the parable. Now that's kind of thematic in Mark outsiders and insiders so a lot of times when jesus explains something it'll say he went in the house so they're like geez could you just kind of break that down a little bit what did you mean he said all right let me explain it to you verse 18 but before he does that if i regularly asked jesus questions and i got this as his first response i might ask fewer questions look at verse 18 are you too so uncomprehending don't you see? Now, again, Jesus is not rude. Jesus is not like, you know, I have to be sensitive to this as a professor. Someone might ask what I would consider a, a less than bright question, especially if I just said it, and they're going, so what do we have to do? And I'm like, I just said it, right? But I don't go, seriously, right? Moron, right? You don't do that. So Jesus is not scolding them here or humiliating them, but frequently in mark remember we're clarifying jesus and so often he'll say don't you understand yet do you not grasp these these things i've been teaching you like last week when we saw he fed the five thousand, and then they're like terrified and he goes didn't you learn anything so again he goes but but then he patiently teaches them so now notice what he teaches them because i need to hear this over and over again he goes, don't you see that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile him because it doesn't go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? Now, that was a... Like, that's not as simple as it sounds. These Jews for 1,500 years had been told, if you eat certain foods, you're sinning. And that was true. If a Jew ate pork during the time of the Mosaic Law, that was a sin, and it did defile you. And they were very careful. They are still today. Like, is that kosher, right? And Jesus suddenly says, don't you get it? You can't eat something to make yourself impure. And that, and that was shocking, right? Imagine if all your life you were kosher if, and, and you've been following Moses 1,500 years and Jesus comes along and says, you don't have to do that anymore. That's why Mark adds, and most Bibles will have this in quotation marks, it says, Thus Jesus pronounced all foods clean. Now again, that we'll see in the book of Acts took time. God had to personally say to Peter, eat that hot dog. And Peter goes, by no means, Lord, I'll never eat that. And you, you know my one-liner here. We'll use it all the time. The Lord says, I'll be frank with you. You're going to eat that now. 
Thus he pronounced all foods clean. Now, don't lose the big picture here. Jesus is saying, so listen here, that was temporary, this idea of pure ritualistic foods. We're moving past that. But what's always mattered to God is what's going on in your heart, okay? So he goes, eating something isn't going to make you impure before God. It's what's coming out of you. Now, this is really important. I need to, to think about this. Verse 20, he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that's what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, and then he gives a list of 12 things that come out of our heart. Six of them are behaviors that we do. And the last six are more, not all, but more about our thoughts and motives and what's going on on the inside. Okay? So maybe you remember how mother used to say, you know, that the drunk at, at, the, at the bus stop who's saying these terribly inappropriate things. And, and mother would say, nothing came out of his mouth that wasn't already in his heart right? So the reality is, as we're growing up, all of us have shocking thoughts at times, inappropriate thoughts, but we learn to not say them. Like, there's certain things you don't say, especially if it's not nice, it's naughty, it's impure. But at the same time, we have to go, but, but it's there. And just because I haven't said it doesn't mean that I'm guiltless, better than saying it, so let's, let's just think about this. So Jesus goes, when you think about it, what really makes us messed up is the things that come out of our heart. For from within, Jesus says, out of the heart, and, and look at these things, evil thoughts. Fornications. Now, this word porneia has to do with sexual sin. God doesn't hate sex. It's not the nasty. God created it. It's a beautiful, wonderful gift to be enjoyed among a married couple. It's not just for procreation, it's for pleasure and blessing. But any sexual gratification outside the boundaries of marriage is considered porneia. That could be premarital sex, it could be porn and masturbation, it could be homosexual behavior. He's gonna later talk about adultery. Jesus goes, that stuff comes out of our hearts. Thefts murders and adulteries and even if you go well, i don't do that then he goes well let's talk about what's going on in your heart deeds of coveting you shall not covet in other words god commands be content with what you have and don't don't look at somebody else's spouse and say boy sometimes i wish i had them for a spouse because my spouse is mean and their spouse is nice or my spouse is not as pretty as or my spouse is not as a hard worker as that spouse not that we ever do that. I'm like, Jesus, you're getting me, right? So it's not just the outside, it's the inside. Deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, jealous of others, slander, pride. Like which of us isn't guilty of pride? If you go, not me, you just condemned yourself again, right? If you got an award for being the humblest person in the church, we'd take it away the day you wore it, right? So we all have pride and foolishness. We're all foolish at times, some more than others, right? All these things, Jesus says, proceed from within and defile the man. So what I'd like to do just for a few moments real quick is just to remind you some things about the heart. 
Number one, the description of the heart is as follows. The heart is the seed of who we are. The heart determines our motives, our thoughts, our intentions. It's, it's our inner being. Now, we could have a, 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 a biological debate and say, oh, it's your mind. You know, your heart doesn't have any capacity to think. But the Bible uses the heart to describe our inner person. But after describing our heart, the Bible tells us about the condition of our heart. And this is so important that as Christians, we rehearse this. And as people who have not yet become Christians, you become aware of this. Heart disease runs in my family, so I get my heart checked, right? Well, God describes the condition of our heart as follows. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thought of his heart was evil continually. So when God made Adam and Eve, he didn't make them with corrupt hearts. He made them with innocent hearts. But when they broke the commandment to not eat from that tree, their hearts became corrupted and twisted, and they were the factory of all other hearts. And so from now on, every heart that came out of them is defective. It's corrupt. It's twisted. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than anyone else. Anything else, it's desperately sick. Who can even understand it? So the Bible describes the nature of our heart as selfish, proud, greedy, jealous, bitter, unwilling to submit to God, not even able to submit to God. So when we say, oh, that little, little one has such a good heart. Nobody has a good heart. Now, this doesn't mean we're all barbarians going around like Charles Manson or Adolf Hitler. It doesn't mean that externally we can't show evidences of being made in the image of God. But we need to understand the human condition. Now, this was the message of Jesus. You don't need a heart adjustment. You need a heart transplant. And this is the beauty of the Christian faith. The Bible says our heart is what controls our behavior and our thoughts and motives. And then when it describes my heart, it says it's desperately sick. But then it offers the cure. And this is one of the beautiful things about being a Christian is God promised in the new covenant, Jeremiah 35, this is what he, Jeremiah 36, he says, the time will come when he would unfold his new covenant. He said, I'll take away your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh I will put my spirit in you. I will wash you and cause you to walk in my commandments. So you might not know this, but if you're a Christian, when you became a Christian, you had a transplant. God did not just forgive your sins. He radically changed your heart. You have a new heart. Now, an analogy, if a child had surgery on their heart when they were infant, they would not know that until they got older and someone explained it to them. If you became a Christian as a child, you might not have known that you had a heart transplant until you learned that. Those of us who became Christians as adults, most of us can go, oh, I, I remember when God changed my heart. So don't get bent out of shape, though, if you can't remember exactly when he changed your heart, because we'll talk about that. But if you're a Christian... You and I can celebrate that God didn't just say, all right, I'm going to forgive your sins. 
Jesus said the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. So Jesus didn't just say, I'm going to change the fruit. He said, I'm going to change the root. And when I change the root, it will change the fruit. And that's a blessing because a lot of people look at being a Christian like, that looks dumb. Who wants to go to church and read the Bible? I can't, I can't smoke weed anymore and I, I can't go sleep around with people. That doesn't. But when God changes your heart, he says, I will cause you to walk. You'll, you'll start wanting to please God. That's a joy, right? He changes our hard drive. And so if there's anything in you that wants to follow God, wants to love Jesus, that's not because of what you did. That's his wonderful grace in the gospel. The Bible says it is God who is working in us to will and work for his good pleasure. So for one thing, we should celebrate, oh God, thank you for my new heart. The Bible says he has cleansed your heart. He has circumcised your heart. You now have a new direction and new desires. I wish we could just go, so go away and just live out of your new heart. But I want to close with this thought. Christians have new hearts, but we have to wear a heart monitor. It's not automatic that your heart, because of your new heart, will automatically and always follow Christ. We want that. I want to be like David, don't you? I want to be a man after God's heart. I want to desire and do what he wants because he changed my heart. So what I want to leave you with is this. If you have not learned how to monitor your heart, the Bible makes a big deal about that. This is very important in Christian discipleship. So let me suggest what that looks like. The Bible says in Proverbs 4, watch over your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. And so we get that. You know, people sing songs. Steve Green, remember the famous song, Guard Your Heart. The, the, the famous writer of uh, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord. Here's my heart, take and seal it, right? We sing, change my heart, O God. So the first thing we do is we have, I have to think about what I think about. I have to monitor my heart as a Christian. So right now, I want you to put your heart monitor on and think about things like this. What's most important to you? What do you value most? What, what are you looking forward to the most? What bothers you the most? What do you think about the most? Things like that. So here's some suggestions. A heart monitor, number one, you have to seek to keep your heart clean, okay? Even though your heart has been completely cleansed, the Bible uses the analogy of keeping your heart clean. So when David committed adultery, when he finally felt the necessity of repentance, he said, Lord, cleanse me, create in me a clean heart, wash me. So there are times as Christians, and they should be regular, if I know that my heart has not been right with God or others, that I confess it to God, that I say, Lord, that was very inappropriate for me to be thinking that, saying that, doing that. If we confess our sins, he will cleanse us. So part of heart, heart monitoring is when we become aware that we have done something disobedient in thought, action, motive, that we ask for forgiveness. So when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, he didn't mean that, oh, you have to be perfect. He meant pure-hearted people are honest about sin. As Bob was saying, it's a gospel lifestyle. It's a regular return to the cross. So you monitor your heart by seeking to keep it clean. Now, here's another thing that's really important. You're going to need some assistance. Because if I go to the doctor and he says, how's your heart? And I go, it's great. I feel great. 
he may have a very different report. And so the Bible teaches us to ask God to search our hearts. Psalm 139, the last two verses, says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So what I want to encourage you to do is regularly to ask God, Lord, would you search my heart? And here's why that's so important. You know what the Bible says? Our hearts are deceitful, right? Left to myself, and we've all done this, right? And we sort of laugh when others do it. It's like the, the, I had this happen. The alcoholic said to me, he goes, man, he goes, I could quit any time. I've already quit 10 times. No idea how deceived he was, right? But what's scary is any one of us has the potential to be greatly deceived about our condition. So we regularly, we say, God, search my heart. Show me when my motives are wrong. Show me when I'm, I'm losing my way. Now, the third thing, and this is just as important, is I, this is one of the reasons why I need to sit under the preaching of the word, read my Bible, be in community with other Christians, because it's the word of God that gives you your reading. This is your printout. So Hebrews chapter 4, now think about this verse. This is telling the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces. Now listen to what it pierces to. The motives and intentions of your heart, not just your behavior. You're like, <clears throat> I was very good to my wife this week. God's like, but my word will pierce deeper than that. It's not just what you did, but why did you do it? And so as I'm reading my Bible, I want you to think about hooking up a heart monitor where, where, where Jesus is. And, and again, the Bible's not designed just to give you a beating, like, yeah, yeah, yeah look at your dirty heart. It sometimes will comfort me. God will give me a little, I, I, I might need a little nitro, a little spiritual encouragement. But sometimes I need the Bible to convict me. I'm thankful that the Word of God is going to expose my heart. Because here's the deal, folks. Any one of us can fall away from God if you're a Christian. Hebrews 3, verse 12 says this, be careful, lest any one of us has an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. So it says this, so therefore encourage one another, lest our hearts become hardened. So I can assure you of this, no one falls away from God overnight. No one is close to God one day and abandons God the next day. It's when they stop monitoring their heart. And Satan is so clever and subtle at this. I mentioned to Bob this morning, I, I say, it's a joy to see so many new faces, but sometimes our attendance stays the same, and I'm going, well, if there's a lot of new faces, what about the other faces? Now, I'm not going to say people who don't go to this church anymore, their hearts aren't right with God. But I will say this, there's a whole lot of people who have gone through this church and many other Bible preaching churches who don't go to church anymore, who don't walk with God anymore. And if you ask them two years ago, do you think you'll fall away from God? No one goes, yeah, I'm pretty sure I will. So the idea of a heart monitor is to say, okay, if I'm to watch over my heart, then I need to, I need to ask God to search my heart. I need to allow the word of God to search my heart. I need to allow others to speak into my heart. Parents, this is so important. Don't just tell your kid, why did you do that? 
right? So if they cheat in school, don't go, you're grounded forever, right? Well, why did you do that, right? Well, I know why they did it. No, you don't. Did they cheat because they procrastinated? Did they cheat because they were insecure that, that they would look stupid? Did they cheat because they wanted to, they were too afraid to say no to a friend, peer pressure? So as parents, we don't want to just focus on, don't do that, but trying to explore the, the, the motives of our hearts. We should never judge the motives of other people. The Bible says don't judge the motives of men's heart, but we can talk about them. We can, you know, ladies, I think you know that every time your, your husband gives you flowers, it might not necessarily just be because he loves you. You might have something else in mind. That doesn't, it doesn't mean you're like, hey, don't give me those flowers, I know your heart. It simply means this is part of being a Christian, that, that Jesus is not worried about the external. You got too much makeup on. You know, you didn't pray for an hour today. It's your heart. And so as we close this morning, one of the things that I've learned to do, this week we were on a little trip with the, the Van Loos, and we decided that we would sit together and read Psalm 119. We take about 40 verses a day, each of us. But I was struck by how many times the psalmist would say things like this to God. Lord, would you incline my heart towards you? Lord, would you turn away my heart from this? Lord, would you revive my heart? So keep your heart monitor on. Pray regularly, Lord, I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like being nice. I don't feel like giving. Anytime you don't feel like obeying God, pray to God to change your heart. God, you said in the Bible, you'll work in me to will and work of your good pleasure. Deepen my desires. Turn away my heart from stupidity, idolatry, and foolishness and incline it towards Christ. You and I can do that as a community, right? And so to me, the great joy would be to say, what can happen through a church of people whose hearts are right with God? God's not worried about seats being filled. He's worried about hearts being changed. I've thought at times that I would love to put a sign right out there that says, we do heart transplants here, free. Now, technically, we don't, but God does. The last thing I want to say is this. If you don't want God to change your heart, you will regret that for eternity. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 says, God is kindly seeking to bring you to repentance, but because of your stubborn and unrepentant heart, you're going to perish. Isn't that kind of what Jesus is talking about when he says you must be born again? He comes and he says to you, hey, guess what? You're not good, and you can't be religious and get to heaven. You need me to give you a new heart. I'll give you a spirit. Why wouldn't you want that? So this morning, if you're not sure if you're going to heaven, you're not sure if you're a Christian, it's not rocket science. Christ died and shed his blood, as Bob said, to forgive you, and he offers you a new heart. And you don't have to clean yourself up. He says, anyone who comes to me, I won't cast them out. So God, awaken dead hearts this morning. May the Holy Spirit awaken you. May you want a new heart. And may you believe this morning that if you ask the Lord in sincerity, he will give you a new heart. And for those of us who already have a new heart, let's just keep that monitor on and grow in grace together. Thank you, Lord, for the wonderful gospel of Christ, the new covenant promise. 
Lord, we know that our hearts have the potential to do disastrous things, but through the Holy Spirit, we can bring forth fruit. Change our hearts, O oh God, so that we become more and more like Jesus. For it's in his name we pray.